0: No matter what time of year, Ireland's biggest attraction is its people. Still, people need to understand that Ireland really is a damp and moist and green place. Coming up, my right-hand expert on travel to Ireland shares his advice from 20 years of leading tours and writing guidebooks. A tour guide from Austria expands our itinerary of places to explore in her country. She explains what national pride means to them.
1: I mean, the Austrian identity is very young. It's uh, only after World War II that the Austrians perceive themselves as clearly what they are now.
0: And my TV producer takes us further behind the scenes in how we made my new
2: public TV art series. It's just this kind of synthesis of not just European history, but for us it's 22 years of actually working and bringing all this stuff together and then in giving it meaning, giving it context.
0: Come along. It'll be fun. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're giving you a bit of a behind-the-scenes view from a couple of my colleagues at Rick Steves Europe. My TV producer joins us in a minute to reveal what he and our cameraman had to do to finish filming our new Art of Europe series. The lead author and researcher on my Ireland guidebook joins us a little later to talk about his work over the past 20 years in finding the best things to include on your next Ireland trip and a guide from Austria takes listener calls for summer vacation ideas in the Austrian countryside. I am so excited that we've just finished our two-year-long project producing our six-hour miniseries for public television. It's called Rick Steves' Art of Europe. And for 20 years now, when I film in Europe, Simon Griffith is my producer. And as we just finished what, what I think is by far our most demanding project ever... I thought I'd invite Simon into our radio studio to give us an intimate peek into the creative process of bringing our love of European art home. Simon, thanks for joining us.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me here, Rick. It's uh, I'm not as used to being in a radio studio as uh, as I am <laughs> being uh, being in the field with a camera.
0: You know, almost every minute I've shot in Europe, you've been right there. You know, making sure things come together, and you've witnessed it all. You've been to almost every great museum in Europe, and I thought. What a cool opportunity right now just to kind of reminisce. Like, if you think of the moments we've had together, uh, we are pretty privileged with the camera to be able to get up close and personal with all these uh, wonderful pieces of art.
2: What are some of your favorite moments? Well, certainly the word privilege comes to mind because, I mean, sometimes, or quite often, in fact, we end up having to be shooting these amazing pieces of art while the museum is closed. So we end up being alone in the museum, so like, alone with David in Florence. I mean it's just an extraordinary experience to be standing there with just <laughs> just the three of us looking at oh, this amazing it's just piece not of fair art. fair
0: because most people wait in line for hours and hours and then they pack in there and it's hot and sweaty and we were I remember it was, it was cool it was quiet and it was just you me the cameraman and David.
2: Yeah, I mean these really are extraordinary moments because not many people have uh get to share this and in, in fact like with the the last supper we were able to, we were given special permission to actually illuminate it with our lights. So we're standing there, again, alone. Special
0: permission. I, the way I remember it, we asked the cleaning lady if we could plug our lights in. <laughs> it was just like a the moonshot, you know. Oh, we've got our lights here. Can we plug these in? Just, it'll help the colors pop. And she goes, no problem. Yeah,
2: <laughs> That's true. That, that was the odd moment <laughs> in that case. And this thing just, just lit up. And just suddenly, all these colors, which... You don't really see when you're right. there as a tourist. Suddenly, it was it was illuminated, and, and, and we
0: both thought millions of Americans are going to enjoy the Last Supper more beautifully than they can imagine because that cleaning lady let us plug in our <laughs> lights. And you know, they don't. You can't have flashes that disturbs a, a painting. But we always say our lights are. Don't you say they're like cool lights?
2: So we illuminate with with because they're all works of art. We have to be very careful. They're all LEDs now, so they're actually right. physically cool.
0: A lot of times, it's great to be in a museum when it's closed, and sometimes that's the only time they'll let us be there. But the problem is the museum's empty, and we need a body. And we see you uh, from behind enjoying a piece of art or something like that. Uh, You've got a little following, actually, because you're the mysterious bearded man who never talks on the TV show. And sometimes it's just awkward to have me eating alone, so you have to get on camera. You don't seem to enjoy being on camera very much.
2: I'm, I'm definitely the reluctant extra you know, my hands fall down, and I just say, okay, it'll be me, <laughs> and I just sit there.
0: But your role as the producer, in, in a nutshell, what does the producer do?
2: Well, there's sort of the three stages of the production. I mean, there's the pre-production where we're trying to set everything up. We have a schedule. Um, permissions. Uh, p- permissions, getting permissions, especially in art galleries. Mm-hmm. That's a huge deal. It's one thing just to be in a right. in a square in Rome, but to get permissions – is, is a big deal, so we have to do that. And then once we're there, we, we have to shoot what we need to shoot for whatever the show is. And in this case, That's to cover the script. To cover the script. And then for me as a producer, when we come home, I work with my editor, who's amazing, and we, we piece the whole thing together and hope that we didn't miss things.
0: And also, I'm glad you're there in the field because you saved me from sabotaging my own shows by being too goofy.
2: Well, it's it's a matter of, like, all these things, like finding a balance. Finding a balance, yeah. Having fun while you're in Europe is one thing, and then just having it captured in in TV, and then that's the way it's going to be for the next, you know, 10 years is another thing. And thank (laughs) goodness
0: you're good at that, because we've got shows that are 10 years old that feel like they were shot yesterday, because you save them from being too timely. They need to be timeless, I just we've just got such a great team and it's such a blessing to have public broadcasting to have a, a platform for this. This is Travel with Rick Steves and we're joined by Simon Griffith and Simon is the producer of our public television series. He joins us now to just reminisce about the biggest project for us yet, producing our six-hour miniseries called Rick Steves' Art of Europe. I want to talk just about the fun we had covering the script. Because it, this is the greatest art of Europe distilled into six hours, and it's like a jigsaw puzzle, and we got to fly to Europe and find all the pieces.
2: Yeah, it was uh, it was a heck of a uh, an opportunity because I mean we have this massive archive of of incredible art that we've, right. that we've been collecting for over twenty years, but then for this series we had to, in order to tell the story, we had to fill the gaps with. Without. We didn't get enough of this, or we didn't get that, or we didn't, we didn't shoot that. So we have to make, uh, we've to made several trips back specifically to avoid the piazzas and all the gelato and cafes and all the stuff that we might normally do in a, in a destination show, and we had to just say, okay, what museum are we going into now?
0: Because you can, you can shoot a great Rubens, and you can come home and think, that was beautifully covered, and then you can go back and think, you write a script, and, and it refers to pudgy-winged babies. Well, we didn't focus in on the pudgy-winged babies, and I, you know me, I love my pudgy-winged babies.
2: <laughs> so so, so then we have to go searching, We're running around, running around uh, this amazing museum in, in, in Vienna looking for a painting of pudgy-winged babies. This is, what I, this is my, my fun. While you and Carl
0: are shooting, you know, very slowly and thoroughly these great pieces of art, I'm running around the museum with a little checklist. Okay, pudgy winged babies, uh, gold leaf mosaic chip, uh, hidden self-portrait, you know, all of these little things to, like you said, put the last piece of the puzzle in. And, you know, we did have limits. I I remember in Vienna, we did a little bit of a cheap trick. We didn't go to Moscow to talk about uh, socialist realism, uh, which I like to talk about, but we did find that monument there to the Russian soldiers that the Russians made Vienna put up after World War II. And today it's surrounded by Ukrainian colors, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah. It was strange to be there because, I mean, in such a, a politically fraught time, and you know, here's this Russian monument with all these people who painted the background uh the Ukrainian colors. So, like a lot of things, you know, we have to shoot around things so that right. we don't draw attention to it. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so,
0: but but it, it did the trick, and we got to talk about uh, artist as propaganda during the USSR. And then we went to Rome, and we hit it during that G20. Oh,
2: the G20! Oh my goodness! I mean, who would know? What are the odds of this? So there's a G20, and and well, of course, all they all want to fly around as like. Uh, Political tourists looking down from their noisy helicopters. We we're, were in the forum, and
0: we had to wait as the president of Tunisia was flying over in his helicopter to get a look at the Colosseum or something.
2: And it takes a long time for the sound of a helicopter to go away before we can start filming again, and before the next helicopter arrives. And
0: and we had the uh, the cronyism and the corruption and the bureaucratic frustrations of Rome. I remember we wanted to get permission to get into the. Forum, I think, with our tripod. Sometimes you can take the camera, but you can't take the tripod. We needed the tripod. And the tourist board said, well, we need a a host from America to help us film a, a promotion for tourism in Rome... And it was pretty clear. If I would dedicate an
2: hour of my time to doing this... It was going to be a deal going down. (laughs) So what
0: am I going to do? Uh, Okay, where do you want me to stand? What am I supposed to do here? And then they let us into the forum.
2: Yep, it was a deal. And we got into the forum. We got what we wanted. And it really was beautiful.
0: And then we went to Athens. And in Athens... Uh, more, more frustrations. I think that was because of a, during COVID, people just are not answering the phone.
2: Oh, it was it was just so difficult to get a hold of anybody, and and it's understandable. And offices were closed and everything. But my goodness, it was like we were just hitting a brick wall in Athens. And then that was the case where eventually it just went to. I'm going to call the American ambassador who just happened to know you, happened to know the show, happened to like it, and suddenly wheels started turning. A few phone calls on there and a few emails. Doors open literally and figuratively, and and we got got access to this extraordinary art in Athens.
0: You know, we did this. We did one hour for each of these from Stonehenge to Picasso and breaking it into six hours, as we did. But in the end, we wanted to get into the fun and the interactiveness of modern art, you know. And we really were looking for something interactive, and we had to always be aware of that because we didn't really have anything in particular in mind. And then in Paris, we went out to film the big um, skyscrapers in La Defense, and we came upon this massive
2: city <laughs> a bench. Giant, a giant bench, and it's like it was just so oddball, but it's classic and modern art. But and then we it's all looked at each other and "Go, get modern up there. art, get on that and bench. Get up, get off there, Eric." <laughs> Whenever we can squeeze in a little little bit of serendipity, a little moment like that, and it's like, hey, yeah, let's just do it. So. I felt like
0: Lily Tomlin, if that's a, Remember when she used to sit in that giant chair? And I thought, Uh-oh. well, we're celebrating art. Simon Griffith is the producer of my Rick Steves Europe TV series. He's with us now on Travel with Rick Steves for some behind-the-scenes stories from our latest filming project, the six-hour miniseries called Rick Steves Art of Europe, our European travels have really nurtured a love and admiration for the great art and architecture you'll find there. We filmed hour-long episodes from the Stone Age and ancient Greece and Rome through the Middle Ages and Renaissance right up to the modern age. The series is premiering this month on public TV stations across the U.S. Uh, And as producer, what are your feelings about the thing when when you just look at the project knowing that people are watching it around the country right now?
2: Oh, this is an extraordinary, rewarding feeling because it's just this kind of synthesis of not just European history, but for us it's 22 years of actually working and bringing all this stuff together and then in giving it meaning, giving it context. I'm very happy the way that shows have come out. I think people will learn a lot about the the story of European art.
0: over the years we've shot most of this stuff in the context of a travel log I mean here's what you do in Brussels here's what you do in Barcelona here's what you do in Athens but we've never done it in that context with the sweep of the story of Europe and it's just so great that our love of art now is being able to be broadcast and shared throughout the country right now thanks to public broadcasting Simon thank you so much for uh, being my partner in this and joining us today in Radioland
2: thanks Rick it's been a pleasure
0: Simon and I remember the surprise we encountered when we drove out to do some filming at Europe's largest Neolithic stone circle in England. It's in an extra from today's conversation. You can listen to it from our website, ricksteves.com/radio. We'll get ideas for enjoying the countryside of Austria in a bit, but first we have a lot of Ireland to explore. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves.
2: Hello, my name is Barry Maloney from County Cork on the south coast of Ireland. I have a good one about uh, Irish, Scottish, English. Mm -hmm. It's a quote by George Orwell. Kind of sums it up. He
0: said, The English are not happy unless they're miserable. The Irish are not at peace unless they're at war. And the Scots are not at home unless they're abroad. Well, that's thought provoking. So, There's some truth to that. (laughs) Barry, did you have another one? A common question is, what's the English impression of the Irish? Yeah. And they always look at us with a kind of a bit of a puzzlement, you know? Winston Churchill summed that up. He said, we have always found the Irish a bit odd. They refuse to be English. (laughs) So there you go. Twenty years ago, my guidebook covering the British Isles was called Great Britain and Ireland. That's terrible. I didn't know Ireland well enough to do a book just on that, and people in Ireland and people in Britain, they deserve their own guidebook. One of my tour guides, Pat O'Connor, sat me down and explained why we must free Ireland from the British. Pat talked me into co-authoring a guidebook just on Ireland and this year we're celebrating the 20th edition of that book and Pat joins us right now to share some of his Irish favorites. Pat, thanks for being here. Great to be here, Rick. Thanks. Boy, Pat, you have you travel all over Europe, but you have a certain passion for Ireland. How how many tours have you led for us on Ireland?
3: Uh, in the mid seventies, seventy-five-ish. Seventy-five tours, the
0: best of Ireland. You've been doing that for over twenty years. I'm so thankful you cornered me in my office that day and and woke me up to the need for an Ireland guidebook, and you've updated it with passion. What have you learned from your tourists? Uh, what they enjoy the most? What what experiences provide the magic moments? You know, we always ask people, what are your magic moments? And what are your challenges as a guide? Mm -hmm. What have they been as as you've worked with your American travelers uh, appreciating Irish nature and culture?
3: What are the highlights? Well, so people need to understand that Ireland really is a damp and moist and green place. It wouldn't be so green if it wasn't damp. You're as far north as the Alaskan panhandle. So beach lovers, sun lovers, really they're not drawn to Ireland initially. But the people, I know the people are just the amazing thing that really grows on you. There's no Eiffel Tower. There's no Alps or Colosseum, But the longer you're there, the more you connect with the people. And particularly musically and
0: in pubs, that's where I find the magic happens. So this is really insightful, Pat. It's like... To me, it's a lush island, and that comes Mm -hmm. with rain, obviously. We live in the northwest. I I love the evergreen state, and I feel like I live in a terrarium. You don't complain about the rain. The rain is a blessing. Yeah. And the same in Ireland, and you've got that conviviality. And uh, when I think of the places where I know the most people, you know, per mile in, in all my years of researching, Italy and Ireland. There's something about that joy of life, uh, and that accessibility, that let's just get together and chat, you yeah, know? Yeah, now, yeah. you've been doing this for 20 years. How, how has Ireland changed, would you say, in 20 years? Well, there's many more
3: cars on the road now. Uh, Rick, Ireland became more affluent in the last generation or two, and when I first started traveling there way back in 1981, there'd be one family car. And now, just like in the States, mom and dad each have a car, and the eldest uh, youngster may. So it's become traffic congested, especially in Dublin proper.
0: Mm-hmm. The economy has certainly gone up and down. I mean, I remember the mm-hmm. bleak days when everybody was on the dole, it seemed like, and they were frustrated. And, that, then you, and then you got the Celtic tiger economy, and then that crashed. And then where are we since that? Because we had that huge spike up with mm-hmm. the Celtic tiger, mm-hmm. and then it did come down. It was it kind did. of a bubble. It and did. where are we now, would you say, with Ireland?
3: Ireland really recovered from that faster than other nations uh, that were having uh, banking problems. For example, Greece was on the griddle as well at the same time. And the Irish really responded um, very responsibly, financially, Mm -hmm. and they're back on track. And they're savvy businessmen um, all the way across the board.
0: Because for a lot of international companies, they see Ireland as a great place to set up because of the... um, The low tax rate, the corporate tax rate. The corporate tax rate and the availability of educated people who are not that expensive to hire. That's right. English-speaking educated uh, people that
3: are not that expensive to hire. And Ireland is the English-speaking country that uses the euro. Um, so, in terms of business, with Brexit, that's a huge deal. That's right. That's exactly
0: right. So, London exits the scene from the in the financial world as mm-hmm. far as EU is concerned, and suddenly they need a. Uh, there's a huge advantage when you're international banking with uh, English and yeah. Ireland is there. That's right. Yeah. Now, with the recent affluence of Ireland, we see better food. When when you and I started traveling in Ireland, it made English food look good. You know, that's true. And now. I'm blown away at the creativity and the international flair, the fusion, and so on. That's right. Irish chefs who may have left for
3: a generation to find better opportunities have come home, especially during the Celtic Tiger. And in a town like Kinsale or Dublin, you can find some really gourmet restaurants that Mm -hmm. uh, hold their own against uh, most other big European...
0: You can um, still go to a run-of-the-mill tiny town in the countryside and have just one pub to eat in. That's right. But and you go to a, a, a resort town, a wealthy little town on the south coast like uh, Kinsale? Kinsale, yeah. Kinsale
3: is a, a, a beautiful little coastal town that attracts a lot of yachters, uh, so there, uh, there's a fair amount of money that comes in and out of Kinsale in a way, but it has grown with the Rise of the expatriate chefs coming home,
0: and I remember there's a guy who was just a globetrotter, and he loves food, and he came back with his partner, and they'd start a restaurant, and all of a sudden it's a hit. It's a yeah. little mom and pop place. That's and, right. Uh, Kinsale is sort of the self-described gourmet capital of Ireland. I thought I was put off by that at first because mm-hmm. the, the self-proclaimed gourmet capital, but I'll tell you, there's a lot of good restaurants. In oh, there's the some fantastic
3: that. restaurants. Yeah.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're talking with Pat O'Connor. And as you might imagine from his name, he's long had a love for the country of his ancestors. Pat's the Senior Ireland Tour Guide and Consultant at Rick Steves Europe. He's the co-author of my Ireland guidebooks, and he's also been leading tours of Ireland now for more than 20 years. And Pat joins us now with his well-earned tips for enjoying the Emerald Isle. Pat, you know... For ages, when people thought of Ireland, they thought of the Troubles. Uh, You know, is Ireland united? No. The northern part of Ireland is ruled from London, and the southern, 75 percent, is independent and ruled from Dublin. How bad was it, and how is it now, and how did they manage to get where they are now? Well, boy, Rick, my first time to Ireland was in
3: 1981 uh, during the Mays prison hunger strikes in the north, and it was a really sad and tragic time in Ireland. But things have really turned around since then. Um, that's 40 years ago now. Mm-hmm. So the troubles, uh, it's been two steps forward, one step back. It's a healthy um, evolution. And I think the more generations that grow up in Ireland without bloodshed, uh, the more it'll be in the rearview mirror for people to be
0: My sense was there forward. was a lot of moderates that they had their Catholic heritage and their Irish Republican heritage or their unionist and their Protestant heritage, you know. Uh, but they were moderates and they were willing to live together, but they were extremists that could quite easily do something terroristic and blow the middle into the fringes and then they'd have all this sort of violence. Polarized, yeah. And uh, then they got pretty smart about it and realized this is quite costly for their society on both sides. And they actually had initiatives where they would let the kids get to know each other and and grow away from the the heritage of hate and fear that they got from their parents. And that younger generation really realized that we can share this island. You know, Rick, they had camps for both Catholic and Protestant
3: kids mixed together uh, to try and, and alleviate this, and it's not an easy process, but it is getting better.
0: Would you say it's safe to travel in the north of Ireland now? Absolutely. No concern. Really. Absolutely. And I think the northern Amaternum coast is as pretty as any part of Ireland, so oh.
3: don't avoid it up there.
0: I have, As a matter of principle, when I think of a trip to Ireland, it has to include the north. There's no reason not to go up into the north. And uh, in the future, do you feel like it's solid or, or do you feel like it's fragile? The peace? The peace? Yeah. I, I do think it's solid, but I
3: think that the Brexit tension is... Um, an irritant right now, and it's not going to really affect travelers as much as it's going to affect business. It's a tariff thing at the border. I don't see them um, checking passports. but Because from up until
0: now with the EU, with, with Britain in the EU before Brexit, they had that beautiful free trade. That's right. And now something that is fundamental to Brexit, the, the exit of Britain, is you don't have free trade and that cuts Ireland in half from a trade point of view, which it is does. a complication. It does. It'll be interesting to follow that. Pat, when I think of Ireland, I think of, of the gift of gab. You know, um, I, I met a guy, I think you know him, Eamon O'Rourke, and he, he picked me up when I was hitchhiking when I was a kid. Uh-huh. And uh, I was just reading my journal. I hadn't read this journal for literally 40 years and I thought, I'm going to try to get a hold of Eamon. And I remember he was just in, in his little town, Castlewellan in Northern Ireland, uh-huh. he was Eamon the plumber. I mean, because there's two Eamons. There was Eamon the carpenter and Eamon the plumber. <laughs> and I, I remember, even way back then, I came into the town and I, I would go, is, is, do you know where I'd find Eamon? And they'd say, Eamon the, the plumber or Eamon the carpenter. And it's so fun to think that they're so yeah. intimate that way. Uh, but I found Eamon on the phone and, and we just rekindled our conversation just, just last year. Oh, yeah. Uh, from what we had 40 years ago. And I remember hanging out with him and, We'd be in a conversation and and the the sun would set, it would get dark, and we'd forget to turn on the lights. We'd be talking in the dark. It was just so enthralling, the conversation. What's your best trick for meeting locals and having those kind of person-to-person memories? You know, asking people for
3: directions is truly a way to connect. And also asking them to take your picture when you're somewhere where you can't take a picture of yourself and Ah, you start a conversation that way.
0: Just a little excuse, you know, ask somebody for, if you're walking through a town, stop and ask them a question and then be open to chat. That's right. That's right. Uh, you, You see somebody and you, hey, could you do me a favor? Take my picture here. And then you say, I love your town. What's the story? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, Rick, on my first trip in 81, I was out
3: on Inishmore, one of the Aran Islands off the West Coast. And there was a real cute little red-headed girl playing with her friends in the driveway. And I asked her, could I take your picture, please? And she was holding her kitten, and it was just a lovely little photo. And I treasured it. And then a dozen years later, I came back, and I happened to have that photo with me. And it was just a really um, fun moment where I was in the one and only little um, restaurant at the Crossroads in Kilronan, and I was paying the bill, and I held up the photo, and I said, I've been looking for this little girl. She used to live down the road 14 years ago when I was here. Do you know where she is? And they said, oh, that's Susie Gill. And I said, where is she? And they said, well, she's in the back. We'll bring her out. <laughs> and sure enough, there she came. True story.
0: You know, that is so interesting because I used to, years ago, I'd say, bring a Ziploc baggie with um, postcards from your home or pictures of your family or whatever. And now we've always got that on our our phones. we got our photography there. And you could go back and, and you could do that. What a yeah. great way to connect. You mentioned uh, Aran Islands, and uh, my memory of the Aran Islands is that the little folk dance club there was the students that did their, their small-town version of River dance Ragoos, yeah. Ragoose. Yeah. and I, I understand they're not in business anymore. Unfortunately, no, they've moved on. And I was going to ask you, in 20 years of music and dance and that kind of entertainment in Ireland, uh, how has that changed, the the trad, you know, they call their traditional folk music trad, and it's... It's not just like square dancing here in the United States. It is honestly, you know, the pop culture, the the trendy, this is where it's at.
3: Absolutely. People of all generations in Ireland are listening to trad music. And you go to a place like Dingle that has uh, fantastic live music and pubs, those musicians are there by choice. They're, this isn't a little backstreet, you know, hiding place. They go to Dingle, gravitate there because they know the best Musicians
0: are going so, to be there. So, as long as I've been going to Ireland about 30 years, there's the, the buzz is, where's the music scene, you know? And, and for a long time, it's, there's a little nothing town called Doolan, mm-hmm. which is always, f- for some quirky reason, where there's great music. Ennis, I find, has great music. Mm-hmm. Uh, Galloway. Yep. Uh, Dingle Peninsula. Of course, Dublin, because that's where the big gigs are. Yep. Are those still the big, the big places for music today?
3: They are, but in a place like Dublin, you're going to see quite a bit of it on stage and maybe not quite as authentic. You have to sort of really ask locals for the traditional Irish
0: pubs that are true. There is a pub in Galway called the Crossroads, and they've got a big mural on the wall. I don't know if you remember this pub. And there's a fire. It's just in the middle of the rural farmland, two roads cross. Yeah. And that's all you need for a gathering. And the people from all four angles of that road would come together, they build a fire, and they make music. Yeah. And that's what that pub is today in the middle of Galway. It's a crossroads. That's and, exactly right. And it's not famous. They're not big shots there, but there are people who know their music and love their music, and that session just takes on a life of its own. And if, if you've had a Guinness and you're into it and everything's going just right, there's not a better experience in Ireland. Oh, it's 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 treasure. Yeah. What, what's, your, what's your tip for getting the most out of the music scene in Ireland? Well, if you really want to check out the music scene, you
3: want to be in the pubs early enough to get a decent seat near where the musicians are going to set up. Uh-huh. Um, so you can see, for example, in illin Piper, the Irish version of the bagpipes, these guys are fascinating. The way they make music out of wrestling with an octopus is what it looks like. Ah. Um, they make great music.
0: The illan pipes—that's like the Irish bagpipe. The Irish, it is, it is wrestling with an octopus. It, that's that's kind of
3: what it looks like. Ah. Um, <laughs> Very musical octopus. Oh yeah, exactly. It's got uh, more octaves than the uh, Scottish bagpipes, and you can kind of bend the notes. So it's it's a
0: beautiful instrument. And that one, they don't on a Scottish one, they're blowing it to fill it up. But with the Irish one, you you fill it with the by the bellows underneath your, one elbow. Arm, yeah. yeah. Pat O'Connor has been researching and writing the Rick Steves' Ireland guidebook for 20 years. We're celebrating his achievements and the many charms of Ireland he's uncovered for us right now on Travel with Rick Steves. We have a link to a video presentation about touring Ireland that Pat hosted a few years ago. You'll find it with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Pat, I think more than in most countries there's a tourist trap route in Ireland and then there's the rest of the country. What is the tourist trap route around the country? What is every big bus, the five top stops? They all stop at Blarney Castle
3: outside of Cork. They all stop at Killarney, uh, the tourist town with the beautiful lakes. Yeah. In Dublin, they hit the Guinness Brewery pretty hard, and they hit the uh, Book of Kells, yeah. uh, the cultural treasure of Ireland in the Trinity College Library. Um, And then up in the north, in Belfast, the titanic Belfast is also uh, pretty heavily You also got the
0: the Bunratty Castle.
3: Did he mention that? Yeah, well, Bunratty Castle, there's actually three castles that do castle banquets in the west. Mm -hmm. And Bunratty is very close to Shannon Airport in Ennis.
0: So it's probably getting get the
3: most big, big tour buses. It does. And
0: then the Ring of Kerry is everybody's The Ring list. of Kerry, yeah, yeah. So those, they're not bad, but you can do alternatives to those that are much more real and much less painted green with little limericks and uh, leprechauns everywhere. You bet. Uh, I think the Titanic and the uh, Book of Kells, those are real cultural experiences. They They're put up with anyways. The other ones, I think you could find alternatives. Also, there's the, the Riverdance thing. They've sure milked that, haven't they? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is that That's sort still, of fading in the rearview thing? mirror, it's, but it's it comes back now. as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got famous names in Ireland. It's so interesting. I mean, people just want to go to Tipperary because they've heard of it. Right. What right. are the big famous names that you can say, well, it's a nice name, but you don't need to go there? Well,
3: Limerick and Cork, God bless them, um, are household names. Uh, but I'd rather be sleeping in Kinsale than Cork. And Kinsale is just a half an hour down the road and closer to the
0: airport. So keep your bar high. Don't just That's go it. to the famous places. That's they, it. They could be good, but there are alternatives. Mm-hmm. That there definitely are. They don't have the promotion. And if a place has promotion, that means it's got golf courses and big hotels that accommodate tour groups and reasons for mass tourism to embrace it, throw money at it, and shape our perspective of how we should prioritize when we put our Irish dreams into an itinerary.
3: We prefer the sleigh head loop around the tip of the Dingle Peninsula over the Ring of Kerry. Perfect. It isn't as touristed, and it is more intimate.
0: Pat O'Connor, it's so fun to talk to you and to celebrate Ireland. I know Ireland is special to you. It, to me, it is. I love all of Europe, but it is so uniquely lovable. It was never conquered by the Romans. It's the only former colony in Europe, I believe. That's right. And it's a, it's a place with a small population and, and a huge diaspora. I mean, what do they say? There's 30 million Irish-Americans? Uh, Over 40 million, yeah. Over 40 million. Yeah. And so it's an amazing island in so many quirky ways. What is your explanation for why Ireland is just so darn beloved?
3: Well, I, I know it sounds cliche, but it truly is the people. I mean, when you meet an Irish person overseas somewhere, maybe not in Ireland, they really stand out and you find yourself attracted to conversations with them. Now go to their homeland and let their pride
0: show and all the way across the board, the people are the real treasure. And that's our challenge, to connect with the people, and it's easier to connect with the people in Ireland than anywhere Anywhere I've ever been. That's so true. Patrick O'Connor, thanks so much for being with us, and happy travels on on more great adventures Thank you, Rick. It's my pleasure. It's actually the second city of Austria, not far from the borders of Slovenia and Hungary. A tour guide from Graz tells us about the corners of Austria where you'll find vineyards, castles, and champion horses grazing on green hillsides. Andrea Wolf takes your calls next at 877-333-7425 as we explore the fine points of Austria beyond Vienna and Salzburg on Travel with Rick Steves. Once upon a time, it was the heart of a vast empire that ruled over 60 million people. Today, the landlocked Republic of Austria has about 9 million residents who enjoy what consistently ranks as one of the highest quality-of-life ratings in the world. Of course, its main city, Vienna, is a must-see capital for Europe. But for tips to get us further out into the country, we're joined now by Austrian tour guide Andrea Wolf. Andrea, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Now, Americans all know to see Vienna, and we know to see Salzburg and side trip into the Tyrol. How can we get a more complete look at your country, Austria?
1: Uh if you travel further south, for example, there is a few more regions to discover, uh Styria or also Carinthia. Not only are they diverse from the big cities of course, you can go hiking for example in the mountains. You could uh, choose a little mountain resort town as your home base and then do explorations um, in the surroundings.
4: Now
0: you live in Graz, which is the I main do? city down in Styria, is that right? Yes. What is Graz like? I've, I've, uh, I've been there ages ago, and I remember it has an incredible medieval armory.
1: It does have the biggest medieval armory with uh, 30,000 items on display.
0: That in itself is worth a look if you're interested in military history. It has,
1: it has a connection, though. I mean, the reason why it's there, it's because uh, Graz and Styria, and, and Steiermark, Mark means border, was the border of Austria. So it was always uh, threatened by the Hungarians, the Huns, and then the Turks.
0: Ah, so that's a souvenir from when Europe was threatened by these powers from the east. And they have these never-used stacks of armor and shields and swords, and they're still there today for us to see.
1: Exactly. And uh, Maria Theresia actually had all the other armories destroyed, and for some privileged reason, Graz could keep it. And so now you can go and see it today.
0: Now, there's different... Uh, what are the political units in Austria called? Are they states?
1: Bundesländer, states, you Bundesländer. can call them states. How
0: many states would be in Austria? There are nine states. Nine of them. And what are the main ones that we should know um,
1: about? Well, the the main ones are Vienna. Of course, that's the capital. It's also mm-hmm. a state. Then mm-hmm. around Vienna, you have lower Austria. That's the biggest state. Mm-hmm. Not many mountains there. As the name says, lower Austria, but mm-hmm. very nice white wines. Uh, Styria, second largest state, is in the southeast. And it's very diverse. You have very high mountains there in the northwest, the Dachstein area. Mm-hmm. It's almost 10,000 feet high. Towards the southeast, it becomes really flat towards uh, Hungary.
0: Okay, so right at the border of Hungary, we've got a a, a place that has a more eastern flavor. Almost. Exactly. It feels, it, it feels a little more Hungarian to it me. It does. And then in the far west, Vorarlberg. Talk about that.
1: Vorarlberg. Yeah, Vorarlberg actually uh, is is a little bit different from all the other Austrian states because it is so far away from the capital. They did want to join Switzerland at some point.
0: Oh, after darn those War War burgers. but they ended up with the Habsburgs.
1: But they had to stick with the Austrians.
0: Because the whole ad- attraction of Switzerland was they weren't Habsburg,
1: right? Actually, it was after World War One that they wanted to join Switzerland. They didn't want to stick with that leftover German-speaking part of Austria, and they wanted to join Switzerland. Oh, I see. But the Swiss, uh, the Italian Swiss, the French Swiss were against it. Because so they weren't give, allowed to. That
0: would give more German weight exactly. to the Germans in exactly. Switzerland. Exactly. So they had oh, to stick with us. Now, how uh, a lot of people just think Austria is Germany's little brother. Uh, How is Austria distinct from Germany? You speak the same language.
1: We do, in a way. Uh, Austrian German, the written language is the same, but there are a lot of uh, terms that are completely different. And of course, the dialects are also varying between the regions. We do understand each other, except the people from Vorarlberg. So so that's closer to Swiss German than to Austrian German but I think for somebody from northern Germany, it would be very difficult to understand me if I speak in my local dialect.
0: But today, when we think about Austria, there's no question about it. Austria is a distinct country from Germany.
1: It is a distinct country, but because of that common language and... Also a little bit common history, or, or there are certain traditions that are similar between Germany and it Austria. It is mixed
0: up. Like you've got this concept of gemütlich, which is coziness, but they have that in Bavaria I think they too. have that
1: in Germany also. Yeah. It's, uh, it's not something... I mean, the Austrian identity is very young. It's uh, only after World War II that the Austrians perceived themselves as clearly what they are now. Hmm. Because uh, after World War I, what was left over from the vast empire seemed some miserable, pathetic... Uh, Left just over. a remnant not after World really War. Not really yeah. something. And a lot of Austrians wanted to join Germany right away after World so War I. So you
0: were basically demoralized as a nation after World exactly. War I. And you, things you, you were this great empire rivaling Paris, Vienna was, you know, and now you're just like...
1: The no. economy wasn't going well, things weren't going well, so hmm. a lot of people did not believe in that small Austria. And when it finally was annexed to Germany, it was the wrong Germany.
0: So you're an Austrian. what makes you most proud today? When do the Austrians really wave their flag? Is it a football thing? Uh, is it uh, music? Uh, what what marks you Austrians as an Austrian? Austrians don't
1: really wave their flags too much, I'm afraid. Uh, we don't have that flag patriotism at all. You, so, might, you might see some flags on our national holiday on the 26th right. of October and they hang them up. So
0: otherwise, you're just kind of laid that, back. You've yeah. been there. You've been a world power. You've started wars. You've lost wars. We now, know what it leads to. So now you're sort of happy to be done with that and just enjoying life the best you can. With, exactly. With, i got to say, great coffee, great cakes, the, the Sachertort, a great love of culture.
1: Oh, food is very important. Austrians are very, they put a lot of value in good food and uh, good wine, good beer. Uh, for example, if you want to have a birthday party and you invite a lot of people and your your food is not excellent but just good, your friends would go around and talk bad about you so you better make sure you give them a nice party with good so food. The and are high
0: and there are some very elegant grocery stores uh, that oh, I yeah. just think are worth visiting just because they're so elegant. I mean, in, in Vienna, where would you go?
1: Well, there's a lot in Vienna. The most famous one is probably the Meindl on the yeah, Graben, right. and uh, that has a lot of international food. But even the normal grocery chains uh, have branched off and they have those gourmet
0: the gourmet section
1: gourmet section and that's a a whole supermarket in itself so all you find is fine wines the finest yes
0: for good living this is travel with Rick Steves right now we're learning about Austria with Andrea Wolf our phone number is 877-333-7425 and Michael's calling in from Denver in Colorado Michael thanks for your call
5: uh, thank you uh, Rick Um, I just wanted to relate a recent uh, experience in Austria we stayed on a farm in uh, Ramburg, which is a very small town, maybe halfway between Salzburg and Innsbruck. But the farm experience is something I would really recommend to your listeners. Uh, now,
0: Michael, this is a bed and breakfast, so you actually uh, were um, driving around and you found a farm that was renting out rooms to foreigners?
5: It, well, yeah, I found it ahead of time. There are several mm-hmm. good websites that uh, you can find farms in, uh, in Austria. And uh, yes, yeah, it's sort of a bed and breakfast, but the farm was was way up on the mountain and with spectacular views of the valley mm. and the town. But it really gets people close to the culture and the people. You become a member of that farm family for three, four days that you that you stay there, and it's just such an excellent experience. Uh, it's pretty centrally located uh, for a lot of sites. The the criminal waterfall uh, area, uh, the Grossglockner Road is there, and but these farms are located all over uh, Austria, and uh, we would uh, recommend that for people that, you know, either have been to the big cities and, and want to try something different, or people who want to really get to know uh, to the people.
0: All right. Michael, that's very good advice. You mentioned the Grossglockner. Did you drive over the Grossglockner?
5: Now, we actually went uh, to the, uh, the Kitzsteinhorn and took the three chairless up to the top of that, uh, which is about 3,000 meters. And that, driving over the mountain passes through uh, the, I think it's called the Gerlos Pass from uh, Zellanziller to Zell-on-Zay, uh is a spectacular route.
0: And I'm still, I'm still recovering from the uh, hyperventilation I had driving over the Grossglockner. Okay. <laughs> that was really something. But do you recommend Kitzsteinhorn?
5: Yeah, the Kitzsteinhorn is, is, right. is right in that same area. Nice. It's right straight south of zell and you actually get fantastic views of the lake there at zell on great from the top of the Kitzsteinhorn.
0: Michael, thanks for your call.
5: Thank you. Good luck
0: in your future travels. April's on the phone in Roseville, California. April, thanks for your call.
4: Thanks, Rick, for having me. Yeah,
0: do you have a comment or a question about Austria?
4: I have to go along with your previous caller's suggestion to stay in B&B's because that's what my husband and I did, too. But we just did it on the fly.
0: Yeah, I've done it and, on the fly, uh, too, and it works really a well. a wonderful
4: experience. And then we went on to the Krimler Falls and drove to the Tun Gorge in the falls and then went up the following day to the Kaprun Reservoir. And you go up in three stages... And overlook the different valleys down below and getting there is half the fun, especially when your tram is loaded with tractors
0: you that's are having
4: some kind of a festival.
0: That means you're, uh, you're, you're celebrating the local culture with the local people when you've got a traffic jam of tractors. Now, April, you're staying in B&Bs and you and you mentioned you did it on the fly. Michael said he used a B&B uh, a web uh, booking service. I, I've just driven around Austria and you see the signs out and they say very clearly if they have rooms or not. Is that how you found the B&Bs on the fly?
4: Exactly. That's and fun. And we've just had such good luck that, I don't think that you're going to have much of a problem there. No,
0: I don't think so either. Thanks for your call, April.
4: Thanks.
0: Andrea Wolf is our guide to Austria right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Andrea's based in Graz in the southeast, and she's helping us explore more of the country after we've enjoyed fine walks in the elegance of Vienna and strolled through Mozart Salzburg. By the way, our conversation with Andrea was recorded before the start of the pandemic. Sally's on the phone from Lavelle in Pennsylvania. Sally, thanks for calling in.
6: My pleasure, Rick. Last summer I had a pleasure of being in Austria for midsummer, and I had some local Austrian friends who suggested we go to, th- that all the different villages, many of them have midsummer celebrations, and we went to a little village in the Enstall River Valley called Grobming, where there was... Just the local people with a bonfire, and then the little boys doing, I believe it's called slap dancing around the fire. And while we're sitting there having something to eat at a picnic table, the little girls came around in their dirndls selling little bouquets of what were called Sonnenblumen, which were a compilation of all the little wildflowers of the area. And I later learned that each Flower represented some quality or wish. Oh, or that's happiness. beautiful!
0: I w- yes. I w- now, this is a midsummer. So, would that be like uh, June twenty-first or something around? Yes.
6: Yeah, so, at summer solstice, apparently, all over the communities have a bonfire. So, even while we were sitting in this little village, you could see lights on the mountain up high where bonfires were being made by different communities, and just like. In Scandinavia, they have the Maypoles, and right. here Austria had these bonfires and dancing and the Sonnenblumen bouquets. Yeah,
0: when you get into the small towns and you just see something going on, you can stop and have an incredible time. I, I hit a festival like that once, and the local uh, marching band was all dressed up in their lederhosen, and they were performing on the main square, and and mm. the girl was running around with the bucket-taking donations, and anybody who gave a donation would get a, a shot of schnapps from her. Hey, uh, uh, Andrea, when you think about Americans enjoying Austrian culture like this, what is the, the thought about the traditional clothing? Because we think of women in dirndls and, and men in lederhosen. Are people still wearing this? It,
1: it is actually coming back. It was uh, completely out of fashion until about 10, 15 years ago. And um, more and more people are wearing them again. Hmm. Not not every day to work, but you would wear them uh, maybe if you have a birthday party invitation after work. You don't get home to change mm-hmm. and uh, you just show up in your dirndl and you work in the office in the dirndl and you go directly to that party.
0: It's a great souvenir. You can go to beautiful shops and see high quality dirndls. These are the, the formal traditional women's dresses and of course the lederhosen also um andrea when we're going to austria we have these romantic ideas of lederhosen and everything and a lot of what we know about austria believe it or not is from the sound of music the the movie that was such a hit with americans what do austrians think about the sound of music
1: well most austrians don't even know the movie first of all and i've watched it be- because one of my best friends went to stanford in california and all she heard was austria beautiful country, sound of music, and she had no idea what they were talking about. So I kind of uh, didn't sign up for it, but we went to a charity movie presentation at the Anglo-American University in Graz, where they showed the sound of music, and I went with a friend, and we both were clueless what the movie was about, and uh, that it lasted so long, and there was singing involved, so it was not exactly what we expected.
0: And so you're Austrian, and this movie teaches Americans what Austria is, and You've never even heard of the music, and when you saw it, does it give Americans an uh, accurate impression, or is it all fanciful and romantic, would you say?
1: Well, I mean, the music is not uh, Austrian. It's all American, and, purely, uh, genuinely we, American.
0: And when they sang uh, Edelweiss, I, I thought Same. that was the national anthem of Austria.
1: Not quite. No, that's also American. You song. don't even
0: So Austrians don't even know the song, Edelweiss. No. Oh, break my heart. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Good for us to know about that, isn't it, Sally.
6: Yes, and I I have a question. Uh, While I was in Austria as well, staying with local friends, one of them loaned me his Lederhosen to wear to an event. And so I was biking down the country road in Lederhosen, just getting all these smiles and delight from everyone I passed. And then at at the little festival in the hut with the Alpenhorns, and I'm the girl there in Lederhosen. And all the guys are admiring my later hosen because they were like really old later And You could tell that the young ones. I said, "Well, I like your later hosen too," and he's like, "No, but you must understand how special yours are. Look at you know how worn and how many years." And so on. One one thing I was curious was, what are the thoughts on a woman wearing later hosen? It was a great delight, but. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, all the other girls had uh, dirndls on.
1: I've actually seen a lot of uh, girls in lederhosen, and uh, the the main deal, the big deal, is if you get it from your grandpa. Oh, so you, you were
0: your grandpa's lederhosen, your granddaughter.
1: Or, or if 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 it's really old lederhosen, yeah. your grandmother wouldn't have worn it. But mm-hmm. if it's uh, if mm. it's new, it has no value. It's like anybody can buy it. There is no tradition. It. There is no because
0: leather ages beautifully.
1: So and you don't wash them. So, you just wear them.
6: I am hoping. I will inherit the later house, and hope for you too.
0: I, good luck on that, Sally. <laughs> Thanks for your call.
6: You're welcome. Bye bye.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Andrea Wolf. We're talking about experiencing Austria. Andrea, just to close up our discussion on Austria and experiencing Austria, talk just a moment about food and wine and how that's important for our visit.
1: Uh, when you come to Austria, I definitely recommend that you go and drink only Austrian wines. Forget about all the other countries when you're in Austria. Drink the Austrian wines. Austria is mainly famous for white wines, but also red wines. We would find pretty good red wines by now too. And uh, it's best to experience them in uh, Buschenschank if you come to uh, southern uh, Austria, Steiermark, Styria. Or what is it is like a Heuriger, the okay, wine so I know the word
0: Heuriger, the new wine festival in Vienna. The
1: Heuriger the are outside of Vienna, mm-hmm. and uh, it's the vintner that sells his own new wine, and mm-hmm. he sells it directly to the customer with food. The is something similar, but it's stricter. They, they're not allowed to sell coffee or beer there, for example, only mm-hmm. homemade products. So it goes from fruit juices to wine to schnapps.
0: Now, there's a wine that's sort of grape juice on the verge of wine. I just love that. What is it called?
1: Sturm. 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 You can only get it, you need to time it right. You need to get it between uh, end of August and uh, middle of November mm. if you're lucky. But sometimes they run out of earlier. Yeah. It's uh, half-fermented grape juice. Yeah. And the best one is the Sturm. It's the the pink one, but like the, a rosé. But the, but
0: the new one, the Buschenschenken or the Heuriger, is this a certain time of year that we can enjoy this festival?
1: Well, the Bus- Buschenschenken, there is, for example, in, in the state where I live, in Steiermark, there is more than 800 Buschenschenken. So there mm-hmm. is no lack of Buschenschenken. But they are not open every day or all year round. Mm. Some of them open in February and open until June, and then they close for summer. Others open for summer. Okay, and in but some... you can
0: find it in many months around the year.
1: And you find around. it, I'm sure you find uh, more than one bushenshank in every uh, smaller town throughout the year.
0: Andrea Wolf, there are so many ways to understand and enjoy and experience Austria, and you've shared some very good ideas. Thank you so much.
1: You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. I'm the executive producer, Tim Tatton. Our associate producers are Kaz hall and Donna Bardsley. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, affiliate promotions from Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. When you're on a road trip, you can listen to Travel with Rick Steves on one of more than 500 other radio stations. You'll find a list of when and where we're broadcast
0: at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. My Facebook friends are a fun community of curious travelers, and you're invited to join in. To stow away with me in my work, play, politics, philanthropy, and travels, follow me at Rick Steves on Facebook.